you shouldn't not do something because you hate the way it was done before. Instead, do it your own way. Like I can do it sassier. I can do it different. I can do it my own freaking way. And obviously I can do it with authenticity. And I think that's just so important for listeners because so often we put these opportunities into a box and we don't think about what I call like apply the 50% rule, which is going to be my second book, which is think about, okay, yeah, you want to do something like maybe career and leadership, but 50% of it, do it like everybody else, like learn, you know, the basic structure and things that will make you successful, but 50% of it, do it your own way. Do it a way that you desire, do it a way that feels more comfortable for you. Do it in a way that is more innovative. Welcome to Pivot Me where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. Hello, we have got a treat for you. We are excited to bring this guest in today. This is Erin Hatsikosis, a former corporate executive where at age 42 became the CEO of a nine-figure company and in just three years, she tripled earnings and sent employee engagement skyrocketing. She clarifies that engagement means people give a shit about their work and she made them give a bigger shit about their work. And then after a fateful conversation with a woman seated next to her on a plane, she made a pivot. We're going to hear about that today. Erin is also a prolific speaker, a truth teller, an edutainer. She may dance on stage frequently. You'll have to see her gif on her website. Her TEDx was the 18th most watched TEDx talk released in 2021. She's been seen on ABC, CBS, and has contributed to publications such as Business Insider and Fast Company. She's also a best-selling author of the book, You Do You-ish, Unleash Your Authentic Superpowers to Get the Career You Deserve. Let's bring Erin in. Erin, thank you so much for joining us at Pivot Me today. I am so excited to first see you, be with you. It's been a little while, but yeah, I can't wait to talk with your audience. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm super excited to have you here. You know, we've talked and engaged many, many times, been on lots of calls, but the work that you're doing is just so important. We've just read your bio, obviously impressive background, impressive corporate career. I would love to know what was the catalyst for you to transfer out of this? So you've got this career. I love that you started as an actuary, by the way, eventually to this high performing CEO getting results. And then you made a pivot. Can you walk us through that pivot? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It was a pattern that I had started. And I think your listeners, a lot of them probably can relate to this. You know, I was at a big corporation and about every, you know, three or four years, I would get to this point where things were starting to get easier. I understood the content. I was the go-to person. I didn't, you know, I could read an email once and respond like that. And there would be sort of this angel on my shoulder would be like, oh, enjoy it, girl. Like you deserve it. Like it's not as stressful as it used to be. You fixed some of the things that were wrong. And then there was like the devil on the other shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder would be like, you're lazy, you know, don't have the same fire you used to have. And I would essentially like, I would just lose this like excitement and motivation. And, and the first few times I was like, oh crap, did I like sprint a marathon? And like, maybe I'm just tired. And I was only going to be good the first, you know, five, 10 years of my career. But over time I started to realize, and I've talked to so many people, I know this is not uncommon that even though your angel side thinks that you should enjoy it. And the easy part, most of us are driven when we have to figure out something new, when we have a challenge, when we have to prove others and ourselves that we can do something. So I had started to recognize this pattern, right? And it had sort of taken on new roles within the parent company, within the corporate world. 
each time I noticed that and got better at it. And then CEO kind of turned the rent company around and that damn devil showed up again and was like, you're just kind of coasting and you're not like kicking butt and you're sitting back. And, but when I started to think about, okay, what's next? It was almost like, you, you know, you go to a restaurant and you're looking at a menu and you're kind of, I don't know if I'm weird, but like you kind of fake try on like, oh, does a taco sound? And you're kind of like, no, taco doesn't feel good. Like it does a hamburger, right? I was doing that. In fact, I was doing that in some of the top C-suites within the company who were trying to talk about, okay, what you could do next, knowing I was itching and, but nothing, like nothing tasted good. I was just like, nothing is really whetting my appetite for this exponential learning for this challenge that I had learned was what fueled me. And so I started thinking about, it was partly that it was partly I'd been at the company 22 years. And it was like every year longer I'm there, it's harder to get out, like whether it's perception. And I was kicking around a lot of different ideas that would give me something new, but I thought, you know, one of those was to do my own thing. And I was on a business trip and I met this really nice woman and she had done about 10 years in the corporate world. And then was running her own company for, you know, the last 20, 25 years. She had an HR company, outsourcing company. And so I was peppering her with question after question after question. And I finally stopped and I said, I'm sorry. I'm just so curious because, and this was the first time April I had said it out loud. Like, you know, all these thoughts have been going on and it like came out because we can do that. The therapist on the airplane. And I said, because I'm thinking about maybe going and doing my own thing. And as soon as I said that, I was like, Oh God. And I literally said to her, I said, Oh, but that would be so stupid right now. My reputation is at an all time high. They're like throwing big, big jobs at me, blah, blah, blah. And she just looked at me so fast and succinctly and matter of factly. And she was like, who says this is the top. As soon as she said that it was like the metaphor literally unfolded in front of my eyes. I could see the mountain ranges I had never been on the, the trails I never hiked through. And I was like, Oh my God, like, I don't know what it feels like to go on this trail. I don't know what it looks like from this mountaintop. And she's absolutely right. Not that I had ever thought I was, had reached the top or was a ladder climber, but just this concept that the definition of the top is different. And it, it sounds so silly, but it was that one conversation that really gave me the permission to further explore, like, what could this next thing be? Wow. That conversation never happens if you don't first have a vulnerable, authentic conversation with someone, Right. Like she doesn't get to speak wisdom into your exact situation if you don't first have the courage to say, here's where I'm at. And then she gets to weigh in. Yeah, great point. Wow. I love this idea. Was, who says this is the top? I love this because so many of us are focused on, we'll use the metaphor of climbing the ladder and we're just looking at the next rung and the next rung and the next rung. And if we pan back, I always say like, let's make sure you actually want to be at the top of the ladder you're climbing because most people are just focused on getting there faster. But I love this idea of you like pan out and go, well, wait a second. This is just one of the many buildings. This isn't the top. This is just the top I see today, but there's so many more things that we could be doing out there. That admission must have felt really scary in the moment. You know, it did. And it's weird. I feel like my story is a little different than most because I wasn't in a bad place. Like a lot of the left corporate to entrepreneur pivot stories are laid off, got sick, hated my job. I didn't have any of those in place. And so on one hand, it seems like, oh, that would be hard because I didn't have the impetus. On the other hand, I was like, what do I have to lose? I haven't burnt bridges, like worst case have to come back. And then, and then what was interesting from there is that I actually didn't go into what I'm doing now, which is being the CEO of Be Authentic Inc. I explored, there was a couple of things I explored. And then I actually quote unquote started a software company, which I say quote unquote, because I did like a strategy deck and like logo. And then they're like, somebody was like, well, now you just have to start building prototypes. And I was like, oh God, I don't, I don't like, I'm out. I'm not a builder. I don't like to build stuff. I like to create. But what happened for me is actually when I, and I think this is a really important lesson for your listeners. When I went to retire, 75% of the messages I got kept saying the same thing. We'll miss your authentic leadership. And it's not like I was surprised they called me authentic. I wasn't like, oh, who me, you know, but I had never been pinned with that badge. Like that wasn't you know, this, this badge I had been wearing. And what happened was, you know, all along the way, I was having this great success, but I also very often would think to myself, when am I going to be found out? 
And it's not your traditional like imposter syndrome. I, I understood you have to lean. I had been doing that my whole career, like doing stuff that I didn't really know what I was doing. I, but it was more that as I kind of looked to my left and my right in the executive ranks, I wasn't sacrificing as much as everybody else. You know, I wasn't jumping on a plane every single week to meet with customers. I wasn't moving my family every two or three years to take on that next job. I wasn't canceling vacations. I mean, I certainly worked hard, don't get me wrong, but I just felt like I hadn't been sacrificing as much. And so I kind of thought, oh God, I'm kind of getting lucky that I've had all this success and I haven't had to do what so many of my peers has had to do. But when I heard and finally synthesized all that feedback, I was like, wait a minute. It wasn't that I was going to be found out. It was that I was playing a different game. I was playing an entirely different game than everybody else. I had decided subconsciously, and now consciously this is what I teach, is, you know, that being authentic, it helped me get the best talent. It helped me actually negotiate deals. It helped me stand out with senior leaders when I would go into the quarterly business reviews and, and be different than everybody else. So I sort of kind of put that together And I also had thought about going into the career leadership space, if you will, when I was evaluating different options before I quote unquote did the software company, but I didn't. And here's why, because I was like, well, but there's like thousands of career and leadership. I'm not like, I don't like to be normal. I don't like to be a, you know, they're dime a dozen. I don't want to be a dime. I'm a businesswoman. Like I probably do well at that, but it's just not my thing. And What happened is after I sort of synthesized all that information and after I thought about that and really reflected on decisions I made in my life and something that I teach and preach nonstop, which is you shouldn't not do something because you hate the way it was done before. Instead, do it your own way. And so when I kind of put that all together, I was like, okay, wait, but I've figured out something that's really important. People are miserable. And I've not only figured out have a career that wasn't miserable, but that gave me better results. And like, I don't have to do career and leadership like everybody else. You know, what do I hate about it? I hate that when it's boring and it's stuffy and it's this, and like, I can do it sassier. I can do it different. I can do it my own freaking way. And obviously I can do it with authenticity. And I think that's just so important for listeners because so often we put these opportunities into a box and we don't think about, you know, what I call like apply the 50% rule, which is going to be my second book, which is think about, okay, yeah, you want to do something like maybe career and leadership, but 50% of it, do it like everybody else, like learn, you know, the basic structure and things that will make you successful, but 50% of it, do it your own way, do it a way that you desire, do it a way that feels more comfortable for you, do it in a way that is more innovative and blends things from other things. And you don't have to go out, pivot into, you know, a specific box. You can actually curate and blend your own, you know, next thing. I love this idea of the 50% rule. So you said at first you were kind of, you're being authentic, but it wasn't necessarily conscious. Like, did you have a role model or, because when we get into business, we're kind of taught, like, this is how you do it. This is how you hold meetings. This is how you network. This is how you engage with people. This is how you lead your people. Like, was there someone that's like, yeah, I'm going to buck the system and you can do it your own way? Yeah, I had two critical influences in my life. I mean, the first was my father. My father was actually a teacher for about 30 years. And then he went into real estate. And when my dad was teaching, he would come home every day after school. He would sit at the counter. My dad's a storyteller. And most people would come home. They'd sit and talk to their wife, probably complain. My mom would be cooking dinner. She taught as well, but she was home earlier than him. But he wouldn't. Instead, he would tell story after story about things he did in class to get the students' attention. I love the story he would tell about he had kids that weren't listening. And you know, instead of like giving them punishment or detention or yelling at them for not listening, he came into class one day, he set down a tape recorder, he hit play and he walked out. And on the board, it said, I'm a blank, I'm a blank, I'm a blank. And he walked out and the music starts playing and it's James Taylor, I'm a steamroller. Right. And I'm a steamroller, baby. Right. And then he got, I'm a napalm bomb. For, and so the I'm a blank, the kids had to figure out that they had to go through the song and fill in the blanks. And then he came in and it was his way of teaching this lesson. Like you guys need to better listen. And he would, I mean, 
thousands of stories like that. And I not only heard the stories, but I knew the success he had as a teacher. He was a beloved teacher. He was one of the favorite teachers of all time in his school. And then I saw him also, as I was an older adult, carry that into crushing it in real estate because he took those same principles. He didn't go into real estate and was like, I'm going to do 50 cold calls today. And I'm going to, he did it his own way. So it took me till my forties to realize, but I think that was my foundation. And then I was also lucky. One of my first bosses, I'll say the first boss that really took a chance on me after I had failed out of the actuarial profession, she led our international division. And in fact, it's just on our podcast this week. And she ran a business. She was totally not qualified to run an international business. Like I always tell the story about going to London with her and going out for a business meeting dinner. And we went to this Japanese fusion place. And I remember, you know, she looks over at me and we're about ready to sit down and she looks at the chopsticks and she goes, oh, huh. Japanese eat with chopsticks too. And I was like, oh my God, you're the, you know, you're the head of this international division of a fortune, you know, 50 company. But I really watched her obviously with great admiration and, you know, saw times where people would sort of be like, ah, I don't know if Martha knows what she's doing. And she would just plow her way through and she had great authenticity, all the principles I talk about. And so that really also helped me see that it wasn't just this thing in the teaching world or with my father, but that you can do it in business as well. Yeah. That's amazing. It sounds like some amazing role models. Someone who doesn't know that the Japanese meet with chopsticks and can still run an international organization. Apparently she made it work. So what does that look like when you actually implement it? Let's take a step back. First, explain to us why authenticity really matters. And then we can talk about how you actually implement it. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is authenticity is not this fluffy unicorn doo-doo, like be yourself BS that people talk about. I mean, there, there's something so wonderful about this, like unabridged version of yourself to just walk around freely. That's not what I talk about. And that's not true authenticity, especially in the workplace. The root word of authenticity is actually authentikos. And it's a Greek word that means to be genuine, to be original, and to be authoritative. And it was so important when I found that because I had this epiphany and I led with authenticity and I'm like, I got to go teach it. And then I was like, crap, like how the hell do you teach something that's like so inherently personal And it? But I knew that I hadn't just walked into work. Like I walked into my friend's pool party. Like I knew that there was something more nuanced. And so the first thing I do with people is really reprogram their brain. It, it is not simply be yourself. It is also not synonymous with transparency. People always ask me, can you ever be too authentic? And I'm like, no, but what they're thinking about transparency, right? Can you, you know, don't tell me all about your woes and concerns about the systems and marriage issues. And, and so first I help them understand that it is a more nuanced and rich concept. And this is probably the most important thing. Authenticity is actually about you, not about you first. What I mean by that is people that are authentic, whether it's in business or in life, but they are purposely bucking the norm, showing more of themselves, doing things differently, being more original, telling stories, et cetera. They're doing it for the other person. They're doing it for the connection and the trust and the inspiration that, and then kind of the intrigue that it brings. They're not doing it because they're like, oh, well, it makes me feel better if I can be this way. But what happens, of course, is if you have the guts to not follow the playbook fully and to use the the principles that I talk about and the actions that I talk about that are true authenticity, it all comes back to you. It's not that it doesn't benefit you, but if you first are more thinking about how do I do this so that we create connection and trust and intrigue, and then obviously that comes right back to you because you're always going to get better results, whether it's customer, a client, a partner et cetera, et cetera. So that's really the programming. And then what I did from there is said, okay, well, if it's not this, what is it? And that's when I developed my six principles of strategic authenticity, which it stands for humans is the acronym. They're not adjectives. They're actually action verbs. So, you know, I always get a little snarky, like I'll read, you know, a Forbes article or, you know, an article here and there comes up on my Google alerts, like authenticity in the workplace, authentic leadership. And it's always like, you have to be more caring and empathetic. And it's a combination. And it's like, you get done reading that and you're like, okay, I'm still the same freaking person. I instead believe in what I teach are really training wheels 
for actions that you can purposely take in your business that are authenticity principles. They're tangible, actual things that start to get you addicted to, as I say, using authenticity as your secret weapon for success. So I want to understand in a second what those action verbs are. Like we'll frame it out here in a second for the pivoters. But before we do that, as you're talking about authenticity, I heard that it's not transparency, understood. It sounds a lot like vulnerability. Like, can you delineate between these concepts? Yeah, that's a component of it. You know, the way I, the, the, the short definition I give is that authenticity is about exposing who you are when people least expect it. Exposing who you are when people least expect it. Okay. And that least expect it's the most important thing. I'll give you an example. Four years ago, we were doing WebEx video conferences when I was back running my company. We were super progressive, like pre-COVID. We'd have a team meeting. It was optional. Half maybe, kind of like now, half would be on, half wouldn't. I wouldn't pressure people. Didn't know what they have going on, but we would get on video. And then one meeting, one of my leaders came on with like a hoodie and a hat. She had just gone for a run. And like, I was so excited, right? Because that was such permission, right? She, hey, come on, even if my hair's, you know, not looking great or my makeup's not on, et cetera. Now, fast forward four years later, that's not as big of a deal, right? You, you, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I go on calls all the time where I picked working out, you know, over showering. And so part of it is really exposing something of yourself, whether it's, you know, the stories that you tell, the humility moments you give, being unexpected, that people don't really necessarily expect, but make them feel like they have a stronger connection to you because it is so relatable. It's so imperfect. It's so authentic. Great example. So I hear that it's giving people permission kind of to be themselves, but also fosters connection. So like the person that shows up with the hoodie, both, okay, she works out too, just like I do. She looks sweaty, just like I do after running, but also I feel more connected to her. Yeah. What I always say is authenticity unlocks something in you, but most importantly, also unlocks something in everybody else. And it's so funny. You use the word permission in that sense. Yes. You're giving permission to somebody else. I often like stand on my soapbox. I'm like, authenticity is not a permission. It's a power. But my point is it's, it's not simply something for yourself. But you're right. When you do that, when you are imperfect on purpose, when you tell a story instead of getting a bunch of data and facts, it is really about the, the connection and trust because people can relate to you better. I love this. I love the idea of imperfect on purpose as well, especially in our social media driven world right now. Like we're seeing a lot of perfection and even the imperfection we're seeing is still like curated imperfection. Like, oh, messy hair, just woke up like this. The hell you did, Tina. You did not just wake up like that. (laughs) So, I mean, again, this keeps coming back to me. I keep thinking of courage. Like it takes courage to do this thing because it's kind of being seen in a world where we're used to curating what actually does get seen. Let me give you an example because I don't like to sit too long in like theory. Just one example I give that's very well known. So you remember when Whitney Houston, I think it was 1994, 96, sang at the Super Bowl. You remember the Whitney Houston moment? Most people, when I say that, what they remember was like, holy Jesus, mother of God, the best ever national anthem ever sang, which is not surprising. It's Whitney Houston. She's got amazing chops. But what they don't realize what happened in that moment. So when Whitney sang at that Super Bowl, we were actually in the Gulf War. We were in the Persian Gulf War. And when she was preparing for it, she was like, our troops, our babies are over. Our country needs inspiration. It was a heavy time, right? Just like we're in now. It was a very heavy time. And, and her thought was, when I sing this song, like people need inspiration. They need help. Like I need to bring more to them. And at that time, the national anthem had never been sung other than pretty much the same melody, the same beats, the same, I'm not a singer, but had been sung and had been preserved, right? And it makes sense. Like it's the national anthem. It's like a flag, right? You don't want to disrespect it. And up until that point, everybody had basically sang it the exact same way. But Whitney, again, authenticity, not being about, oh, well, I want to sing. I feel better when I sing it differently. But she thought about other people and thought they need something more. And so she didn't just go in and do it. They brought this up. The network executives, NFL, all pushed back like, no, you know, this is the national anthem. You don't do it differently. This is a huge stage, right? This is a huge risk. 
And they really fought her and her music director. They fought and they advocated and eventually they agreed to it. And not only did she fight for this like more lively version. She also went in, if you see the pictures, you can easily, you know, go to YouTube and listen as well. She's in a tracksuit. She's like up until that point, same thing. Everybody came, whether it was in their military gear or their business suits or their dresses because they were respecting the national anthem. But she was like, I'm going to the game afterwards. (laughs) I I don't want to be sitting in a dress, you know, at the Super Bowl. And the reality is not only did she sing that song and people remember because it was so mind-blowingly good, but what people don't remember is because she had the guts to think about other people, to do a version that was more authentically her and more courageous and different, the national anthem has never been the same. Now we take it for granted that every time you go to a sporting event or whatever, you're like, ooh, like what spin is this opera singer going to put on it? You're, you're, and you're leaning in for it, right? If, if everybody was singing it the same damn way, you just, you'd probably forget it even happened, right? You tune out. And that's just one of many examples of somebody who's authentic. They're going, okay, what is the norm? And why are we doing the norm? And does the norm even make sense anymore? And is there a better way that will connect with people to do that norm. Another great example I want to give because the entrepreneurs, you know, it's easier on video. I show it in some of the corporate workshops I do. It's a great example. This was a video that my friend forwarded me a couple of years ago. And she's like, great example of authentic customer service. It's called First Form. They do performance shakes. And she got this video. Apparently they had had an issue and they were back ordered and shipping delays, which she didn't even know there was a problem, but they sent it to all their customers. And instead of the normal like apology email or stuffy like legal thing, it was a video. And it's this video of picture this like big buff Andy Fraselli. He looks totally like Andy Fraselli. He's walking into the front offices and they're empty. He's like, here at first form, I'm out in the, the front offices. Normally these desks are, you know, have people working here and working this and working that. You can see there's no people over here. There's no people. And he's sort of, you could tell it was very like off the whim. And he's like, that's because we're all in back. Come with me. And then he goes in the back and they're in the warehouse. He said, that's because we're all back here packaging up, you know, shipments, making sure they're ready to order. We've got everybody packing, including the president. He goes over and the president's like, hey, what's up? And he's like, we've got this person, that person. And then he goes kind of off to the side and says, look, here's the problem. We had a big freezer break. When that freezer broke, then that meant that we couldn't keep things at the temperature. Because of that, it backordered our stuff. We're all about quality. We didn't want to ruin it. Because of that, your orders are delayed, blah, blah, blah. What an incredible, authentic experience to be in their warehouse, to be told not just the story, but the specific, like we had a freezer break and exposing who they were when people least expected it. And now not only obviously Meg was totally fine, you know, as a customer and anybody that was having issue, I'm sure was totally fine. But not only that, I've now taken it and talked about it on stages and workshops, et cetera. And that's really the power of authenticity is when you, you have the guts to say what's normal and then what can we do that's better for everybody on the other end and makes them feel connected to us. Yeah. I'm just thinking about I know you say that authenticity isn't permission, but what I'm kind of hearing is it is permission, just not for you. Yeah. It's for someone else. Boom. Nailed it. Bam. I picked this mic up and drop it. I'm just thinking of an event that I went to not too long ago, and it, it was a high-end event, and some things went sideways, and people were pretty unhappy. And the owner of the company ended up getting on a call with me, and I wasn't coming to the call to complain about it. I didn't have quite the same experience as some other people did. But they kicked it off and saying, look, I'm just going to address self in the room. This happened. This was not to our standards. I'm sure it wasn't to your standards as well. Here's what we're going to do to make it right. And I was meh about it. I wasn't displeased about the event, but I will tell you the way that they handled it, the way the owner of the company handled it impressed me so much that I was like, well, I'm I'm continuing my engagement with you. I'm going to continue my contract because in that moment, she impressed me more than if we would have had a great event and there was nothing to talk about. The fact that she owned it and addressed it. And I'm just taking a step back and thinking she probably didn't want to have that conversation. She didn't do that for her own benefit. She did it for mine. She did it to kind of own what happened and how they were going to adjust moving forward. Now I recognize it for what it was. All right, we've got some awesome news today. The YouTube relaunch is here. 
now. Never seen before footage of our actual interviews. You're going to watch the video of me sitting down with Jay Abraham and ask him, what the hell are us entrepreneurs doing wrong? We've got footage of me talking to Cameron Harold and him telling the story of the rave he went to in his 40s. Footage of when John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneurs on Fire told us that we aren't perfectionists. We're cowards. We have it all captured and we are pumped to share it with you today. Go to YouTube and put in April Garcia Pivot Me and join in. See me thank Sharon Lecter in real time for writing the Rich Dad Poor Dad series because the series of books helped guide me when I was 20 into becoming a real estate investor. And listen in when I asked several of our high performing guests the very tough question of, hey, how do you personally self-sabotage. We made this for you. So join in at YouTube and subscribe so you will see when new videos are released. It'll be every Tuesday. You'll actually get notified. So take 10 seconds and do it now. Grab your phone. If you're on a desktop, do it there. Go to YouTube and enter April Garcia Pivot Me or enter the URL directly at youtube.com backslash April Garcia Pivot Me. And please support us by giving us that thumbs up and subscribing. We recently became partners with YouTube and that really matters. You're going to love these videos. Erin, if a pivoter is listening right now and they're like, all right, well, how do I bring more authenticity into to my business, either with my staff or my clients? What are some steps to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, so I have a framework called the six principles of strategic authenticity and it stands humans is the acronym. I actually was just, I was on another podcast interview this morning and, and they asked like, what's your starter kit though? And this might be weird for entrepreneurs. Cause I know it's not as prevalent in the corporate world, but what I always tell people is the way I teach is I don't change you. I change your addiction. So it's about little experiments that you, you then observe how people react. You get excited by that. You sort of fuels this new addiction to not follow the rules and to be more authentic again. And so my gateway drug is changing your out of office message. As stupid as that sounds, I almost stopped telling that people, I I still have, like, I have senior VPs that come to me like, Aaron, look at my out of office message. So it starts with silly things like change your out of office message. That is normally like, I won't be on in the office. Anytime I'm going like, I went to Nashville. I was like, yeehaw, I'm finally on the road to Nashville. That's one starter drug. But I also would say, you know, social media is a, a great one. One of the principles is narrate and stories are remembered 22 times more than facts and figures. And so another great starter play is where are places where you're just like, oh my God, on LinkedIn, and maybe your entrepreneurs aren't like this, but I cannot take it when I hear the, I am so honored to be part of the blah, blah, blah. It's like everybody freaking says that. Nobody wants to read the same thing. So instead of saying, I was so honored to be nominated, like tell a story about how you got involved with that organization. Tell a story about something and that's why they're recognizing you. Uh, Look for places to replace those, whether it's data, facts and figures, or just those common like openers that are lazy. And instead- tell a story. People that lead with authenticity are storytellers at heart. So those, those are some of the ones I start with, but I'll just talk through the six principles of strategic authenticity. This is something I do in keynote, but, and also in workshops, I don't expect like the fire hose and this to all set in for people, but I'll tell you what those are. And then, you know, we can always talk about resources and stuff where people can dive into them more. So each stands for humility. And by the way, if there's any like English teacher grammar people on here, when I said these are action verbs, they're not all really action verbs. It's sort of like my flippant. These are things you do purposely. So don't correct. You're like, I think I said that to one of my, I had it in something. I had an editor for research and she's like, these aren't actually, I was like, I know, I know, I know. I just Just work with me, work with me. That's how I talk. So humility and humility is really about purposely finding humility moments and exposing those like when you're meeting somebody. So I almost always use a humility moment. I'll talk about failing out of the actuarial program or how I tripped coming into my office or it's rare that I'll get on a call and not in the first three to five minutes. I won't purposely, not just because, oh, I was thinking about it, but like, what can I tell that makes me look imperfect? Because I know that's sticky glue. So that's number one. Is it kind of like self-deprecating backstory sort of thing? Like what speakers do? Okay. Yep. It's right along that same line of, of purposely. 
Every time you say you failed at, at being an actuary, I always want to respond with, what's the chances of that? <laughs> I want to make that pun every time. Okay, oh, so I made it. That's the first time I've heard that one. Oh, man. It's immediately what I thought of. And I was like, do I say it? Do I not? So I just revived it. I brought it to the light and I said it. You waited. You waited for the moment on record. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the second is unexpected. This is really about finding those moments, kind of like Whitney did, where the norm, whatever, you know, going through the motions on the funnel process that somebody taught you or the way you're supposed to write copy or the way you're supposed to do something or the, you know, how you're just supposed to, and looking for a way to be more unexpected with it, looking for a way to have people stop in their tracks because you've jolted their brain with something even just slightly new. So that's really their original part of being authentic. M stands for model. And what I talk about is really in context of so many people have what I call a managed mindset. They're doing the things, they're making sure they're productive, all these things, instead of a model mindset. And a model mindset is really, it's, I call it shut up and show up. It's kind of the classic, like walk the walk, right? How do you demonstrate, you know, because people listen to words, but they emulate action. Right. So how do you walk around? Like, so for example, if I came on this podcast and all I did is talk about authenticity, but I wasn't authentic, like what the frick is that about? Right. How do you 3D? And it's not just because I'm a speaker about authenticity. Right. How do you become 3D in your message so that you're demonstrating more than you're talking? The next is H-U-M-A. A stands for adapt, which is a two-part series. One is really this concept of you have to adapt and plug into others. So it really gets to the, it's not about you, it's about plugging into, right? It's the connection with others. It's a dial. My authenticity here might be different than my authenticity in other places. That doesn't mean I ever pull it back completely with like some stuffy stuff, but you're doing it in a way that you are slowly dialing. So you're plugging into that person with your authenticity. And then the other part of adapt is that like, hey, people, your authentic self today is not your authentic self tomorrow. It's this concept that I would rather have people spend most of their time trying to figure out who they want to be versus who they are. Right. So that's the adapt principle. N in humans stands for narrate. So this is the storytelling, but I need an N. And this is really the concept of, and the difference between being a storyteller, like you said, I think before we hit record, I have some great bar stories, right? The difference between a happy hour story that you might tell your friend and a, a business story that you use with your clients, customers, partners, employees is that you're taking that story and then you're you're bringing a point and a message to them. Like, what is that story a metaphor for? Or what point is, you know, how does that emphasize how you want the team to operate around this next project? And so really teach people that there are, you know, there's five different kinds of stories I have outlined and I help them understand how can you use those stories to better, you know, engage people and get them to listen, to understand and be drawn into what you're saying, which is everything, right? And especially in business. And S stands for spark. And spark is really meant to indicate that the great part about authenticity, which we kind of talked about, is that it's contagious. Like there's so many business books and leadership principles. And it's like, you have to be this noble martyr, like work harder. Actually with authenticity, part of the reason you're doing it is to, to use your words, give permission to others. And so I talk a lot about, especially in the leadership realm, how your job with this isn't to inspire people. It's actually to create this inspirational flywheel, this platform where people are inspiring people and authentic people and leaders. That's ultimately what they do. It's the greater cause of being authentic. It's that constant spark and inspiration for others. Yeah. You know, it's interesting before I fully appreciated that your acronym was humans before, when you're first talking, I thought she's really bringing the humanness back into the workplace. <laughs> so I was like, well, it works really well. It's sort of, um, also deconstructing what we have done in the workplace, especially in corporate America. Like we've taken the humanness out of it and it seems like you are running counter to that, like putting it back in. Yeah. It's like, what's simple is now cool. And the good thing to do, we've layered some of the layers that it is. It's about stripping it back to, to really the more simple approach. Tell me why that matters. So if someone's listening and going, okay, I get it. You get connection. You give people permission to kind of bring their humanness to the table as well. All right. I get that. Like, why do we do that? Well, so funny you should say that. So up till about a couple months ago, 
most of this was a hunch or third-party data, my experience. I was basically making stuff up. But we actually did a research study. We launched it early May. Uh, we call it the impact of authenticity in the workplace. We surveyed uh, over 1,100 respondents, national survey, working employees. And we looked at the correlation of things like authentic cultures, authentic leaders, and looked at the correlation to things like trust, followership, employer retention. And it's it, crazy. So just to give you an example, we asked people, how much is authenticity practiced in your organization? We asked them on a you know five Likert scale. And then separately, like 10 questions later, unbeknownst to them, like these were related, we, we asked them a question that said, do you think you'll be working at your employer two years from now? And then we looked at, okay, people that said authenticity is always practiced, 92% said that they would be at their employer. Then we looked at sometimes practiced, it was like 86%, you know, 70, 60, and then never practiced, it was down at 40%. So the correlation between authentic culture and employee retention is ginormous. We looked at, is your leader authentic? Another example of the research. Yes or no? Simple question. Yes or no? And then later again, like eight questions later, we said, would you follow your leader if they took a job elsewhere? People with authentic leaders were four times more likely to follow them out the door, right? I mean, trust, uh, organizations with authenticity, four times higher trust. In fact, we also said, when you're looking for a new job, here's a bunch of different factors. What's most important? And comp and benefits and flexibility were one and two, which was really a surprise. Authentic culture and authentic leadership were three and four. They were ahead of the values aligned with my values. They were ahead of getting the experience I need to build my resume. And they were also ahead of diversity of the company. So why do you do it? Because it produces results. Because we all know employee retention, attraction, trust, all of these things have been highly linked and intuitively linked. I call it the ROI, the ridiculously obvious idea to results, right? And money and success. That's amazing. Those are strongly correlated. Erin, tell us about your book. Tell us who should read your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the book's called You Do You-ish. It's a fun play, of course, on the fact that authenticity isn't just about you do you. And, you know, I wrote the book. It's sassy. It's fun. I bring that up because it's not your traditional nonfiction book. I hate books. That's actually the first line of my chapter. And as I talked about, part of authenticity is going, okay, what are the things that I don't like or that I crave and how do I do differently for others, right? It's a simple formula. And when I thought about most business books, I'm like, I don't make it past like chapter five. They're, they're righteous, they're boring, they're academic. So the, the book is fun, is whimsical. It's sort of, I don't want to say it's part comedy because it's not, it's like me trying to pose as a, you know, comedy. And it talks through, you know, the foundation of authenticity. It actually, the second section is sucky songs. So we talk about five most com common sucky songs that people sing that hold them back. And how do you rewrite those sucky songs? And then the six principles is the third part where I talk through each of the principles and give you specific, and there's fun stories and there's specific exercises and examples. And then the last part of it is really how do you sort of take that at a, at a broader pace? I would say, you know, who reads this in your community, anybody that is looking to build their business and either has struggled because they're trying to follow the patterns that everybody's and they don't either work or they don't feel right. Or somebody that's just starting out that is feeling like they have this dream, this vision, this goal, but they don't want to do it like everybody else. And so many people that read my book, you know, some people are like, ah, oh, that's great idea. Most people say you put words to the things that I've been thinking. And you gave me permission, like this gut, like that had been floating around in my mind and hadn't really like formed, but always was sort of out there. Like you put words around it and solidified my thinking and gave me permission. There's that word again, to do what I thought really does work, which isn't necessarily all the crap that I've been learning in every other book or every other mastermind, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, and I don't know if this applies, but I'm just thinking about, I remember seeing a video recently where it was a female business owner and she's like, here's what I was told. Don't use brush script. Make sure you're this, make sure. And, and all the things that she said, now I will tell you, this might be my corporate trappings, but I was like, yeah, no, that's right. I, I don't want your email signature to come across in brush script and pink. Being totally honest, I would judge that. 
And so maybe I'm part of the problem, Aaron, but like I watched this video and obviously I haven't seen the video, but I think you get the context of it. And I'm watching and I was like, well, that's all true. That's all true. It doesn't look professional. I would receive that and not think it's professional. There's, um, just being honest here, there's a company that we engaged with, we hired a few weeks back. And so me and my integrator are on our call with us and, and my integrator is from the corporate world as well. And I say, just so you know, he's going to get on the call with a t-shirt and a flat cap on, and he's going to send us an email from a Gmail address because I had judged him for that. And I knew she likely would too. And so again, I'm just being really honest. When he got on the call, he got on with his baseball cap and he's a great guy. And, you know, we had a good call, but she said, I'm glad you gave me a heads up because I would have been distracted by that. So let me ask you, Aaron, are we part of the problem? Well, first of all, I don't like pink brush script either. So do, just doing something because it feels like it's how you write, right? Is not authenticity. You know, but I do think there is an element of leaving your ego at the door. I do think that so much of the problem is that we're so worried about what other people would think. And we don't give our the permission to experiment and to come into that and be okay with it. And then give her the permission to be okay with that person. I do think that one of the powers, if you want to really use authenticity as your secret weapon, you largely have to leave ego at the door, which will catch up to you. He'll run and catch you back up to you once you have the great results from leaving him behind for a little bit. Mm, interesting. Okay. It's interesting because having come from the corporate world now in the entrepreneurial world, the rules are totally different. And I'm always straddling these two. Like I get on a call and I'm like, oh, I'm talking a small business. So I have to drop my you're not getting on the phone with a billion dollar organization, April. You're getting on the phone with a small business and they operate different. They're going to call me on a Zoom call from their car. They're the same people. They're the same damn people. It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, just experiment. I mean, I could tell stories for days about executives having epiphanies that they were meeting with some stodgy CEO and then they used authenticity and they're like, oh my God, you're right. It like he brought down his guard and we had this great conversation. I always say authenticity is like, when you're at your kid's birthday party, when they're like four and at the end, you know, they bring around the pizza and then they bring around the cake for the kids and they have leftovers. Right. And they typically walk around the outside to the parents and ask them if they want a piece. Well, what do most parents say? They usually say no, because they're waiting for someone else to do it. But what are they really thinking? They want the cake. They want the freaking cake. And that's what authenticity is as well. It's kind of like the whole leaders go first. They got to go first in authenticity too. Yeah. You're so right. That same person, I'm just thinking we were on a call with him the other day and we could hear his toddler in the back and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry, you can hear my three-year-old. And my integrator immediately stepped in and said, don't apologize. We all have lives. And I was like, oh, he just gave me permission because the truth is my kids were in the background and I was hoping that they weren't loud and could be heard on the call. And he actually went first in the authenticity. And it also reminded me that it was like, oh yeah, no, it's people have kids. That's normal. It comes from all directions. It doesn't have to come top down. So yeah, he let you okay. have I have one final question we always ask, but before I do that, where is the best place for people to connect with you, Erin? You can go to my website. So it's beauthenticinc.com. It's just the letter B, authenticinc.com. And we got, I've got a podcast, the book, the free resources. I don't know, trudge around, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, no. And you've added so much value today. Me as well. This is something that I'm like, I got to reflect on this and kind of let go of some of these like I said, maybe corporate trappings, but Aaron, if you could tell the world one thing, what would that be? I would say, stop fitting in, start standing out. Mm. Stop fitting in, start standing out. That's it. Like it's no fun to fit in. Why go to a conference with a gray suit on when everybody's wearing gray suits, wear the pink suit with the brush script front on your business card. That's so good. That's a really good reminder. It's funny because my closet is filled with gray suits. And <laughs> my, my sister, who is not of this world, she is an artist through and through her degrees in art. She works as an artist. She would ask me, like, is this corporate issue? Like, why do you have the same outfit over and over again? And it would drive her crazy because she is like a walking art piece. She's very decorative and, and beautiful and amazing. But she'd always push back on that. She's like, well, and I was like, well, trust me, like, this is what you do. And it's hard enough being in this role. And anyways, I definitely bought into the gray pantsuit era. And she would always push back on it. She's like, why do you all have to look the same? Like do something different. And I didn't back then. I do a little bit more now though. Yeah. 
Erin, this has been so valuable. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. The study that you did, it was really, really beneficial. And I hope that there's a pivoter out there going, you know what I need to bring? I need to bring more authenticity into my company, maybe even into my community or my family, and that you see the benefit of doing this. And it may be very different than what you've done up until this point, but you know, it's time to reinvent it. Speaking of authenticity, my daughter's here. And we have, we have to go pick up my son. So we're going to, we're going to say goodbye to all you pivoters. Thank you, April, for having us on. Absolutely. Um, We'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. See ya. I love when she says, when she's given the advice or posed the question on the plane, who said this was the top? Have you been there? Have you argued with yourself that where you're at is probably the top? It's probably good enough. I make enough money. I have a great role. This is probably the top. I shouldn't push for something else. But who said this was the top? What a waste to know. There's another peak just past this one, and it's even better, but we convinced ourselves that we have already peaked. I want to emphasize another thing that she said. I love when Aaron said, you should not do something because you didn't like the way someone else did it before. Man, is that true. How often do we see someone else handling something and because we don't like their approach to it or it doesn't resonate with us or doesn't speak to us, we decide that thing, well, that thing isn't for us. The thing that could be, lots of things. It could be being in a C-suite role. It could be running a marathon, writing a book. It doesn't matter what the thing is but you've got to go at it your own way. Don't be discouraged. It's important, rather it's important to separate how you've seen it handled before and the thing that you want. Those are two very different things, which actually ties into her next piece, which was the 50% role. She gave an example of going into leadership. She said, learn the ropes, the basic structures, the skill set, the best practices, yes, and follow those 50% of the time. The remaining 50%, Back to our original message, do it your own way. Do it with innovation, do it with authenticity. You don't have to stay in the cage of how it was done before. And that is at the core of Erin's message. She says she's a professional pot stirrer and that she is. She's stirring. She's stirring us. She's making us think, hey, just because it's always been done this way doesn't mean that it has to continue to be done this way. You can curate your own thing. Go connect with Erin and get her book, you do you-ish. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.